Join us October 28th at 5 p.m. Pacific Time for a fundraising gala and to celebrate the 2022 Distinguished Citizens Awards. Make a donation to the Commonwealth Club to support our critical mission to provide balanced civil dialogue on society's most challenging issues. Text CLUB2022 to the number 41444 so you can register and donate today. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone. I'm John Bolin, President Emeritus of KQED, and I serve on the Commonwealth Club Board of Governors. It's my pleasure to introduce Susan Rogers, the author of This Is What It Sounds Like, What Music You Love Says About You. Susan is a cognitive neuroscientist and professor at Berkeley School of Music in Boston. She's also a record producer and audio engineer who has worked with artists including David Byrne, Bare Naked Ladies, and Prince. Throughout the book, readers are encouraged to listen to various songs to illustrate and bring to life the concepts that are described in the book. And so throughout today's program, we're going to be listening to songs, which will be fun. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club, Susan. Thank you. And let's start off by hearing a snippet of our first song to set up the story you tell in the overture, which is the introduction to the book. So let's go ahead and play that first track. Obviously, that's Purple Rain by Prince. Uh, and the reason I played it uh, is as an introduction for Susan to tell us briefly the backstory about how someone who was not a musician uh, but who loved music ended up being the sound engineer for Prince uh, and then and many other great recordings, including Purple Rain, and then pursued a, re- a career as a neuroacoustician. <laughs> Uh, so, so tell us how 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 did this happen? Yeah, I grew up in Southern California, and um, like a lot of little kids, just was crazy about music. And I um, I really believe that little children, most of them anyway, down deep inside, they kind of know who they are, 
and uh, and I did, and and I felt an in- instinctual attraction to music, but no aptitude for it whatsoever, and no desire to even have any aptitude. I didn't want to play or write or sing. I wanted to, in some way, serve music, help it come into the world. So, um, in order to get into that kind of career, uh, when I was. 21 years old, it was 1978, and you didn't see women recording engineers or record producers. I mean, you'd see very few now, much less then. But there was one avenue that I could, one door I could walk through that would work for me, and that was to become an audio technician and repair the audio equipment. And I did that, uh, self-taught in electronics, and uh, worked my way in and up the chain. And then it my lucky break came in 1983. Uh, my favorite artist in the world, who happened to be Prince, put out the word that he was looking for an audio technician. He liked working with women. I had all his records. I had seen him live many times. I was an audio technician, and I was willing to leave Hollywood and move to Minneapolis and be his full-time tech. He transitioned me from the tech chair into the engineering chair, and after that it, I was off to the races. Amazing. So over the course of nine chapters, you approach music listening experience from every angle, and we're not going to have time to cover nine chapters today, but we'll have time to touch on four chapters, authenticity, melody, lyrics, and rhythm, or at least we're going to try to get those four. The first song we're going to hear at the very beginning of the first chapter, Authenticity, is a recording by a group called The Shrugs. The Shags. The Shags. The Shags, yeah. Uh, The most charitable word I could use to describe this recording would be amateurish. Okay. Uh, So let's go ahead and play I'm So Happy When You're Near. Probably enough. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us how you selected that song, and and what does it tell us about authenticity? So in this book, I'm talking about the listener profile, and I'm describing um, things that I learned in, in grad school about how the brain processes music. So I'm describing the listener profile along seven dimensions. Four of them are musical. Three of them are aesthetic. I'm saying how we all have a sweet spot on all seven of these dimensions. The one dimension, though, that isn't well scribed by science is authenticity. And that's just something we knew in the recording studio. It has to do with where you, as a listener, perceive the performance gestures to be coming from. Is that singer singing her little heart out? Is that bass player getting down into the belly button to play that grungy bass part? Or is that player... John Coltrane, let's say, technically so proficient that he can blow you away playing from genius from the neck up. 
So when we listen to performers in the studio, we're assessing, is this real? Is this authentic? Now, the Shags are what we call an industry band in the sense that people in the music business know about them. They were three sisters who grew up in rural New Hampshire in the 1960s, Betty, Helen, and Dot. And their father believed they were going to be great, successful musicians. So what Dad did was pull them out of school, forbid them from dating or seeing boys, made them stay in their room and gave them instruments and said, you're going to play and you're going to be great on your instruments. And these poor girls, they're just teenage girls and they're cut off from the whole world and they didn't know how to play. But they wrote these songs, like I'm so happy when you're near, that has a genius to it. I'm so happy when you're near, I'm so sad when you're away. Now that you're here to stay, I'm happy every day. There's a purity about it, a kind of Emily Dickinson sort of purity. So when we listen to them, we don't hear technique, but what we hear is pure, unadulterated intentionality. It's teenagers on drums and guitar and bass saying, I want to tell you something. It's the musical equivalent of a child's finger painting. A child's finger painting is not going to hang in the museum, but the child is saying, this is mom, and this is dad, there's my dog, there's the house. I want to show you something. And in their lack of technique, you can perceive what they're trying to do. In the recording studio, you sometimes get musicians who are very well trained, and they play perfectly with no heart and no soul at all. They're just being technically perfect, unconnected to their hearts and their belly buttons and their groins. Shags are all heart. So that's why I wanted to share it in the book, to share their story, but also to point out that great music isn't always technical perfection. Sometimes great music is great intentionality, pure intentionality, in a sense. It's interesting that you point out some pretty famous artists appreciate oh, yes. flags. Yes, because they recognize that's hard to do. It's hard to be that pure and that raw and that exposed. As Miles Davis used to say to his musicians, play like a non-musician. Meaning, play like a three-year-old would play if a three-year-old could make music. How a 97-year-old would play if a 97-year-old had the dexterity that he once had play like a human this the shags remind us of this so authenticity realism and novelty are what you refer to as the aesthetic dimensions of a listener profile and for the rest of the program we're going to focus on three of the actual musical dimensions of listening starting with melody uh, frank sinatra as you point out in the book is considered a master of melody uh, but he was not always master of melody. We're going to listen to two Sinatra recordings that will illustrate how he learned to leverage melody to develop what is now his very familiar style. Let's first hear Frank singing All or Nothing at All in 1940 with the Harry James Band, and then we'll hear how he sounded 25 years later singing It Was a Very Good Year live at the Sands in 1966. So let's play both Sinatra recordings. Nothing at all 
appeal to me If your heart never could yield to me Then I'd rather have nothing at all Let's go ahead with uh, the 1966. In, in his early recordings, he sounded not particularly special. Yeah, he sounded like like a really good band, big yeah, band singer. Yeah, trying to imitate Bing Crosby a little right. bit. And, and then later in life, he got his, his own style. When I was 17 It was a very good year It was a very good year For small town girls And soft summer nights We'd hide from the lights On the village green When I was 17 When I was 21 It was a very good year It was a very good year For city girls so tell us what we're hearing and, and what do we learn about melody from Sinatra's development? When Sinatra was a young man, 24 years old, he went to a concert at Carnegie Hall. He saw Yasha Heifetz, violinist, perform, and Sinatra was sitting near the front, and he saw how Yasha Heifetz would make these long phrases with his bow. He could just keep the energy into that bow and not stop those phrases, and Sinatra had an epiphany. He said, if I could just learn to do that with my voice. So he went to the vocal coach, John Quinlan, and Quinlan said, stop smoking, take up running, increase your lung power. Well, he kept up the smoking, but he did swim and he did run, and he learned to time his melodic phrases. Now, in the studio, you hear a singer take a deep inhale. I lo used to love that with Prince. When there's a deep inhale at the top of a phrase, it means here it comes. Hang on to your hat because an expert singer is going to take all that lung power and time it out just perfectly. Frank was better than anyone at that. So Frank could deliver this subtext of virility because his phrases could last for so long. And then he'd get to the end of the phrase and you'd hear air come out. He'd still have more gas in the tank. And that's a subtext of even more virility. So Frank was showing his dominance over other male singers and also playing with melody in such a way that the band had to follow him. That segment you just heard was actually conducted by a very young Quincy Jones conducting the Count Basie. Yep, he's like 26 years old conducting the Count Basie Orchestra. Frank loved working with uh, with Quincy Jones. But they all the musicians who worked with him said Frank could hold on to a phrase to a length that was beyond belief. But Frank valued lyrics so deeply, he wanted to make sure you understood and paid attention to every single word he sang. So he learned to control his breath and consequently his melodic phrases to make you feel what he wanted you to feel. 
hard to do. He was the master, regardless of what you think of his politics or other aspects about him. We're just discussing the man's musicality here. And uh, there was no one finer in his day. And another superstar with melody was Nat King Cole. Mm. Let's hear Nat King Cole singing Nature Boy from 1947. There was a boy A very strange enchanted boy they say he wandered very far, very far over land and sea. A little shy and sad of but very wise was he. So what makes Nat King Cole a master of melody? So when we are, we're learning about melody when we're in the womb, in the final trimester, it's a liquid environment, and we can hear mom's voice, and a little bit later on we can hear dad's voice too, if dad's voice gets close enough. So we're learning how humans use the pitch changes of their voices to express emotion. And then after you're born... Uh, caregivers use their voices to express, all right, baby, you got to calm down now. Or, come on, baby, get excited. It's time to put on your pajamas or whatever they do. Uh, I don't know. I don't have children. Um, you know, this, is, this is the tone of voice we use to warn you or reprimand you. So from a very early stage, we're learning what these pitch changes mean emotionally. When we grow up, if we become composers, we compose it in, our, in a way that reflects our native language. So a great singer, who's also a great pianist like Nat King Cole, knows how to use his voice to imbue those lyrics with feeling. Like a great stage actor, countless actors have done Shakespeare. They all have the exact same script, but not everyone is Sir Laurence Olivier. Not everyone knows how to time those phrases and deliver the weight of those words like a, like a true maestro. Um, we don't know, always know technically what we're responding to, but we know it intuitively down deep inside. When we hear a great performance by a great artist, we're moved in part because they know the signals that cause us to respond. And is there, is there a particular part of the brain that's responding to melody? Exactly. So um, our auditory system, our whole brain is very efficient. It divides up tasks. So in case you get an injury, there's a homologous section on the other side that can maybe help you out if you get an injury on one side of your brain. So our auditory system is no different. We've got the two ears, and the auditory nerve bundle comes up through the auditory brain stem, and it terminates right here. Now, above our left ear for most of us, nearly all of us. This left side of the brain is specialized to be a really fast processor of words. Language is, for the most part, processed over here. 
This side is the slow side that doesn't focus so much on the short little differences between a consonant and a vowel, for instance, but focuses on how sound is changing over the long term, which makes it perfect for music. It's listening for those pitch changes, for the intonation in your voice. We're not the only mammal to have developed that. Studies with dogs, domestic family dogs in fMRI scanners, which is wonderful, because a dog, a dog t- lies still in a scanner for three six-minute runs. They'll do it. They lie in the scanner with the little headphones, and it's the same thing. Dogs are responding to dog voices over here on the left, and dog valence, meaning dog emotions, over here on the right. This is uh, how our brain is, how our brain can independently attend to the lyrics in a song or the melody in a song and get a, a, a treat, a dopamine hit from either one. If you have friends who say, oh, I never listen to the words on a record. I used to think, oh, that's not true. Now I know it's true that you can totally be absorbed in the, in the rhythm or in the melody, in the harmony in the style of the record, in the timbre, the sounds of the record, and really not be engaging that side of the brain at all. You've got all the treat you need from the other aspects of it. Hmm. Now we're going to hear another version of Nature Boy by jazz legend, legend John Coltrane, who was a master of harmony. I could listen to John Coltrane for the rest of the night, but I'll do that when I get home. Um, Tell us about the role of harmony working with melody to add nuance or emotional power. So, yeah, most um, back in the 50s, most uh, 50s and 60s, most listeners were familiar with Nature Boy because it had been a hit for a lot of of artists. So uh, most music listeners knew the melody. So what Coltrane is trying to do here is play some variations on that melody to wordlessly tell you a little bit more, to imply something else about this boy who wandered very far, this strange, enchanted boy. Now, Nat King Cole presents the song as a sweet, tender, poignant, beautiful story. Coltrane is using his horn to say, yeah, but there's some darkness going on there too, right? And it's the harmony notes that do that. So the harmony notes are... um, shadows almost it's almost how they function they shade the main message in a certain way 
just how I'm trying to think of a good analog with speech, but uh, we can we can choose our words very carefully to imply certain subtexts in our speech that is very subtle. And uh, harmony works a little bit like that. The the great jazz musicians have to be geniuses because jazz improvisation has been called composition in real time. They're writing as they go along, but they have to they 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 have to understand the head, the the lead line, the main melody. They have to know how far they can drift away from that with their note choices, still remain in key still be communicating something and then working their way back to that main melody. You've got to be pretty, uh, pretty talented to do that at that level. Let's begin our discussion of lyrics with another song. Let's hear a little bit of Stand by Sly and the Family Stone. Picking these songs that are killing me. <laughs> oh. So what gave the lyrics of Stan so much power? And I know you particularly felt that. Uh, and how do the lyrics generally impact our listening experience? I sort of, where do lyrics fit in, and particularly on this song, but just in general? Yeah, there's a fellow named Peter Murphy who's written... Um, He's a scholar. He's written quite a lot about lyrics. And he says, if you're out on the street and you hear somebody say, hey, you, you look around and you can determine right away, oh, you doesn't mean me. But when we're listening to lyrics, and I hope we'll talk about this later, about the default network, when we're listening to music, music is really effective at getting us to go into our own heads, shut out the outside world and imagine and daydream, go into our psyches. So you hear that word, you, in a lyric, for all you know, it could be you. And it feels often like they're talking to you. They're talking about you. Sometimes you feel like you're the singer. Sometimes you feel you're the one being sung to. When I was 13 years old, when that song came out, the song is about the tension in America, you know, the Vietnam War and um, race relations were in such terrible turmoil. I was 13, so I was in turmoil just from being a teenager. And 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 that when that came on the radio, those lines, all the things you want are real. You have you to complete, and there is no deal. It just killed me. It just got me. Yes, the things I want are real. Now, other people can listen to that, and it's not special to them, but when the right lyric hits you at the right time, it becomes your words. That record becomes your record. The phrase I like to use is, well, the music of me. When you hear a song that sounds exactly like something you would make if you made music, that's you. That's your musicality. And this record is, is a reflection of my own musicality. 
and and sort of related to that, many of the world's most popular songs have lyrics that capture the social anxiety and isolation of youth. Uh, and so when you hear it, it means very different things. But let's hear a snippet of In My Room by the Beach Boys. Should my Kleenex up here? Oh. Tell us about the way the impact and meaning of lyrics change as the listener changes or as the listener grows older. So when we're teenagers, the most important problem we need to solve is fitting in in our social world. Brain studies have shown, quick sidebar for a fun neuroscience fact, you get adults and teenagers into the lab and get them in the fMRI scanner and you ask them two questions. What do you think of yourself? And the second question is, what do you think other people think about you? And in the adult brain, those are two separate areas. Here's what I think of myself, and here's what I think other people think about me. In teenagers, it's almost perfect overlap. To a teenage brain, what the other kids think about you is who you are. So when we're teenagers, we've got these social problems to solve. We don't know how. We're not old enough yet. But you can come home from school after a bad day. You can put that record on. If you were in the 60s, someone like Brian Wilson would sing to you, there's a world I can go, and it's my world, and I'm private there, and all my worries and my fears can come out in that room. I can do my crying and my sighing. And from men, how often does that get talked about? Women are known to be a little bit more in touch with their emotions and more comfortable with expressing these kinds of sorrows, what a pure and beautiful expression he wrote in that song. Say, I feel vulnerable and I'm hurting. And you hear that singer's voice and you go, yeah, just like me, just like me. You bond to that singer. Now when you get older, you'll appreciate it on a different level. In the book, I mentioned a song like uh, Tammy Wynette, D-I-V-O-R-C-E, singing about divorce. If you're a teenager, that means nothing to you for the most part. But if you get older and that's a real possibility, that song is going to hit you like a ton of bricks. Willie Nelson's version of You Were Always On My Mind. And you're older in life. You know what that means. You might not appreciate that at 35. In short, lyrics are the part of records that solve problems for us. And our problems are different as we age. And it's interesting, the people who write music and lyrics, um, since she just passed away, Loretta Lynn, lyrics were very important. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about her work. and So the height of elegance is simplicity, and it is damned hard to write a simple song like In My Room or The Pill. 
like Loretta Lynn did or other songs that she wrote. It's hard to take a deep topic and write about it as a simple truth. That's capturing what uh, Joseph Campbell, the scholar Joseph Campbell, called the universal truth. Simple words, but it's true of all of us. Loretta's genius was to be relatable and to get you to feel like, I know her. She could be my neighbor. I could have a cup of coffee with her. She'd like me. Bruce Springsteen, for a later generation, had a simple or a similar relatability. That's hard to do. An artist like Prince or Michael Jackson is, 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 is lyrically not offering that to their listeners. They're offering other things, but not that relatability. Uh, Loretta set the standard for how to do that, and there were many, many uh, songwriters who owe her a debt of gratitude for showing us how it's done. So particularly lyrics do that, I guess, much more than melody would. Yeah, lyrics um, allow us to, as as one scholar wrote, uh, music allows us to don the clothing of the person who is singing to us. So certain lyrics can let you temporarily become someone else. I don't have anything in common with the members of Public Enemy, except that I love Public Enemy. There there are rap artists that I love, because when I listen to them, when I listen to Chuck D, I feel just a trickle power. When I listen to my hardcore music, just a little bit, I will never be that. But I want to feel like that when I listen to the the, the great Lana Del Rey, who I'm, I, I just adore. She's sexy and she's attractive and she's bold and she's just all the woman that I'm not and will never be. I love feeling for a three-minute song like I imagine she feels. This is uh, why many artists are incredibly popular artists like Prince who don't, they're not the kinds of cars that pass you every day. You will pass a Prince on the street, but when you listen to Prince music, you get to be someone who's a fairly rare bird, and that feels good. Yeah, and and actually a a composer who wrote lyrics more than 100 years ago, Irving Berlin, Mm. still, his songs still seem relatable and are still performed by many artists. Interesting. So we're going to move on to rhythm, one of your favorite topics, uh, before we run out of time here. So let's hear the opening of Stoned and Starving by Parquet Courts. So what does this song tell us about the different ways or the individualistic ways that we all hear rhythm? Right. We don't hear it the same way. So rhythm perception is actually something that's extracted from the beat of music. 
So you ask people, sing you the melody of a certain song, and they'll sing you the melody. And you ask them, tell me what the lyrics are to this song, and they'll tell you what the words are. But if you ask someone to demonstrate the rhythm for you, well, that could be different. In, I chose that particular song as an example because some people are going to feel the beat on the one and the three. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. My co-author feels it on the one and three. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. I hear it naturally on the two and the four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. And then younger people with a faster resting arousal rate are likely to hear it on the eighth notes. One and two and three and four and one and two and three and four. and So each one of our, our brains is extracting where we think the pulse is. On records, record makers can let you know where the pulse is by choosing to accent certain beats and have others be unaccented. But in a record like that, it's up to you. It is wherever you think it is. Uh, the records that we love rhythmically tend to match how our bodies like to move. Now, you go to a rock concert and you watch the kids at a rock concert and in rock music, the dance they do is like that pogo stick, that up and down, up and down, up and down. In my day, when we danced to R&B in our soul music, kind of a front to back kind of thing, <laughs> just get on the floor. You don't even move that much, but it's kind of front to back is how you like to move. Latin American uh, music will often foster that side to side. There's more syncopation, so it's a hip swaying movement that's side to side. We all have a way that we prefer to move, and consequently the rhythms that we love the most tend to match the dances we like to do. And how does that evolve? Sort of how do we develop? At what stage of life do we develop? I do not know. I don't know that there's um, research on when exactly we, we find our sweet spot for rhythm. I imagine that it evolves along with your other preferences in your, your, your general taste in music. Um, this may be common to, to you, but my, my brother was telling me after he read this book, he said, yeah, I used to like rock music. Uh, when I his after school job was as a at a grocery store as a clerk, and he loved the rock music because that's what they played in the late night at the end of the shift at the grocery store when they were stocking the shelves. He and all his buddies they'd listen to the rock music. And then he got a little older and started going out to clubs. And at clubs, you dance. And he found he he had a real affection for dance music because think about it: you're at the club, the dance music is playing. There's girls. And you want to dance with them. And you ask a girl to dance, and the girl says, yeah. And you're dancing, and you're thinking, I love this music. (laughs) (laughs) So the whole brain is always processing everything. And when we're experiencing feel-good neurotransmitters and a song happens to be in the vicinity, that song is going to hitch its wagon to the star of those neurotransmitters. And that song is going to get a boost in your opinion. You like that record now. You're not really sure why. If somebody were to ask you, you just, oh, I just, I just really like it. It reminds you of the girl who said, yes, she'd dance with you. And so although there is a rare condition called, which I never heard of before, mm. beat deafness, yes. most of us have a highly developed sense of rhythm by the time we're adults. We can react to layers of rhythm. So to demonstrate that and continue the conversation, let's hear a bit of Missy Elliott's Get Your Freak On.
the hottest ground. I told y'all mother, y'all can't stop me now. Listen to me now. I'm lasting 20 rounds. And if you want me, then come on, get me now. Is you with me now? Then biggie, biggie bounce. I know you dig the way I switch my style. <laughs> so I could tell by our feet we found different rhythm. <laughs> but uh, how do most humans find a groove among multiple rhythms like this um, song? So there's a higher order brain circuit that listens to the basic tempo and then extracts regularity from that. And it is a higher order brain circuit because it turns out that there are folks who have, just like some folks have tone deafness, some folks have beat deafness. And a person with beat deafness can listen to a steady click of a metronome or a car's turn signal. Tick, 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 and you ask them to tap along with it, no problem. Tick, 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 they can tap along with it and synchronize their muscles to what they hear. But play a rhythm like that, and those higher-order circuits, if they happen to be defective, will not allow them to extract a steady pulse from that rhythm. Uh, there was a case that was studied up in Montreal at my alma mater, a kid named Matthew. And Matthew could keep time to a metronome, but they put on a merengue record. And this merengue record has a strong binary one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two beat. Matthew, for the life of him, could not dance or move or tap in time with that merengue record. Uh, Others have been have been shown to also have a defect in those higher order circuits. Now, for most people, it's automatic. Our ability to find regular pulses, the regular pulses that we like in a, a, a very percussive rhythm like that, and lock onto them. But it 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 is does involve some higher order processing. And and so is is someone who is. Uh, who has this condition, the person who goes out on the dance floor and seems to be not connected to anything to yeah. do with the music. Poor Matthew, poor Matthew. He took music lessons and he took dance lessons. It just didn't work for him. I encountered beat deafness uh, with Prince in the recording studio. Um, we were doing hand claps one day. And Prince music is pretty straight. Four, four times signature for the most part. And you can clap on the two and the four. But in those analog days, you, you didn't use a machine for clapping. You got people around a microphone, and you just listen to the music, and you just clap on the two and the four. We didn't have enough people, so we brought in a, a, a receptionist from the front desk, and she stood with the headphones with the rest of it, folks around the mic, and I'm in the control room, and press record, and going along, clapping on the two and the four. Everything's fine. And all of a sudden, she starts clapping in between the beats, we just stopped, rolled back the tape, and nobody said anything. Like, what was that? Start over again, two in the four. And she started off okay, and then just got completely off. And I remember I stopped the tape, and Prince just, just pointed at the door. He just went, <laughs> didn't even say a word. Yeah, I had never seen it before, but her brain circuitry wasn't capable of extracting a rhythm from uh, a steady pulse like that. And since we're, we're on sort of a related subject, what is tone deaf? Tone deaf folks. Well, let's, let's talk about folks who aren't tone deaf. This is an amazing thing our brains do. If we hear an A in this room, and let's assume that everyone in this room does not have perfect pitch, we hear an A, it occupies a, a psychological category that is the note 
A. Categories, it is said, are not created in nature. Human people create categories. An orange and an apple, we have decided, are two different things. So an A is not an A sharp. If you take that A and you start making it more and more sharp, at some point it's going to cross a psychological boundary and it will no longer be A, it'll be A sharp. For many of us, we won't recognize that boundary until it gets to B, but there's a boundary. A and B are two different notes. Um, and we have, for the most part, 12 of, of these pitch categories that we recognize. But for folks who are tone deaf, their categories are really wide. So they have fewer categories. And they might not recognize the pitch difference between A and B. It all sounds like the same thing to them, almost like colors looking the same to, to folks with some color blindness. So folks who are tone deaf have a really hard time memorizing melodies because things don't fall into their categorical bins. And if you can't memorize melodies, you can't enjoy music. The whole enjoyment from music comes from predicting what is going to happen. You hear that lead line, that main theme, and then the saxophonist goes off or the orchestra goes off into variations on the theme, but you just know that theme's going to come back and you can hardly wait. And sure enough, you're happy called positive prediction, you release a little dopamine when that theme comes back. If you can't memorize music, it's all freeform jazz to you. And that's what tone deafness is. It's relatively rare, um, but folks who have it have a hard time perceiving and producing um, notes in scale. So I'm going to move back to the clapping to, to demonstrate musical accents that are almost like language accents. Uh, we'll hear rhythms in two tracks. Uh, first up is Levitating by Dua Lipa and followed by Hand Clap by Fritz and the Tantrums. Why don't we just play both of those? Tell us about the difference in where we feel the weight of the... Yeah. So the record makers in those cases wanted to make sure that you felt the beat on certain parts of the bar. So in Dua Lipa, they're um, emphasizing the two and the four. One, two, three, four. They're making those stronger and fatter and more obvious. Whereas 
in hand clap, there's that very strong one. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Just to nudge your body into moving in a certain way when you hear that record. Some people have preferences for one or the other. So we're going to have, we have a little time for audience questions. If anybody has a question, raise your hand and somebody will bring a mic. Um, No, no, no problem. Um, just wanted to remind the audience that's listening that, that we're listening to Susan Rogers, uh, the author of a book on what, what the sounds of music say about you. And uh, John Bolin is doing the interviewing. And I also wanted to remind everybody that this was uh, a good lit event uh, that was uh, underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. And now. Oh, Wise men say. No, sorry. Um, in reggae, the downbeat is always on the one. And it threw us, rock and rollers. Yeah. Uh, it threw us. We're like, what's this? And we fell in love with it, of yeah. course. Rolling Stones for sure, and, and Marley, and all those cats. Yeah. What's that about? Why did it, that change us so much in the. 70s reggae music because we mm. fell in love. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah, a reggae, a reggae beat, a classic reggae beat is a, features a one-drop rhythm where they don't play the one. It's implied. It's a hole there where we normally expect it. If you listen to No Woman, No Cry by Bob Marley, you'll hear a classic reggae one-drop. Um, there's a, a researcher named Tecumseh Fitch. He's an a evolutionary biologist, and he writes about why we love syncopation so much. So on the records we just finished playing, there are musical beats on the one, the two, the three, the four, the one, the two, the three, the four. In syncopation, well, let me back up a little bit. Tecumseh Fitch writes about how um, a 4-4 four, four time signature matches our bodies when we walk. Foot down, one Next foot up is two. This foot down is three. Next foot up is four. So it's easy to synchronize our bodies to that. But in many uh, African and Latin rhythms, they put the accent not on the one and two and three and four, but on the ands, at the places where we're just transitioning from one beat to another. And what that does, one and, two and, three and, four and, is it forces us off rhythm a little bit. And it pushes our bodies more side to side. And it feels good. You're right that rock music uh, began incorporating more and more and more syncopation as the decades went by. And it's really hard to hear a syncopated rock, a, syncopated, a record without syncopation in it. Um, a groundbreaking record that introduced syncopation into punk was Iggy Pop's Lust for Life. Do-da. That in punk? No, you don't do that in punk. But Iggy Pop did. If you watch the official video for Lust for Life, you'll see the dancers are not just doing that pogo stick motion. They're actually moving their hips from side to side. It looks more like a, a like a West African dance than it does a traditional North American dance. Hmm. Any other questions? Other questions? Um... <clears throat> two questions. You're not related to Mr. Rogers, are you? I wish. <laughs> I wish. Um, I'm wondering, uh, so I have two real questions. Uh, could you comment on the 
compliment that Frank Sinatra gave to Tony Bennett, mm. um, how saying he was able to extend the song or lead into it or whatever. Tony Bennett would play it before every one of his concerts here in San Francisco. This scratchy recording of Frank Sinatra saying the best oh. rhythm or you were talking about blending or, or you know, holding the note, et cetera, was uh, he's, Frank Sinatra's opinion. It was Tony Bennett. Wow. So I wish I knew the quote and I'm afraid that I don't, I don't know exactly what he said. I'm sure Frank you could, could contact Tony Bennett uh, <laughs> no, really, he he's uh, he lives close by. I mean, he does have dementia, uh, but his young wife Susan would certainly be happy to share it with you. I'm sure, uh, and I can probably find it online as well. Yeah, um, I talk in the book a little bit about three audiences for our musical works, and um, this has brings something to bear to that. So, uh, when we're in the studio and we're making a record or performing. Um, there are three audiences, and they're all evalu- evaluating our music differently. The one audience is just the general public. They're listening for, just give me a three-minute treat, and I'll be on my way. And then another audience is the music critics and scholars who are evaluating music in terms of, do we want to hear more of this, or is this an art form that we just want to have quietly go away? But that the third audience is the toughest one of all, and that's the audience of our peers. So other musicians are going to be listening to musicians and listening for, could I have done that? And if they could have done that or if their friends could have done that, they're not going to be all that impressed. But when you hear musicians talk about how great another musician is, those musicians know what it takes to perform like that. Tony Bennett was undeniably great, and Frank, being great himself, was great enough to recognize how hard it is to do what you do and was able to give the kind of informed perspective to Tony and by making that compliment public to others as well, to let others know this guy is great. Often the greats don't get uh, recognition from the public. Jimi Hendrix is a perfect case in point. Other musicians regarded him as the finest guitar player who ever lived, but the public, they were just more into um, Eric Clapton. They, they, They weren't as into Jimi Hendrix. And When you call someone a musician's musician, often it means... That's shorthand for they don't sell a lot of records, <laughs> which is sad. Jeff Beck, yes, yes, yes. So, you know, since syncopation came up, uh, and that requires the brain to work a little harder, mm-hmm. let's hear one more musical selection, Point Sienna by oh. Jamal, live in 1958. kind of reached the point in the program where I think we have time for one last question. And this is something in the book. When humans gather, 
how is it that rhythm is what always gets the party started? And I guess rhythm goes way back mm. in the human race before probably melody or mm. certainly before lyrics. So Tecumseh Fitch writes about that. There's percussive rhythm and concussive rhythm. And so concussive would be you take two rocks and you knock them together. And a little bit later, later on, humans um, started getting involved with percussive rhythm. You'd find a hollow log or something that made noise. You take an animal skin and stretch it across a hollow log and you beat on it. You can beat on an instrument and you can cause a certain rhythm and that can communicate. We know that there are languages languages that use drums, talking drum languages. When um, I mentioned the strong affinity we have for rhythm and how basic it is to most of us, most of us have really strong bidirectional neural tracks connecting our auditory cortex up here to our motor cortex. We're really good at moving in time with rhythm as long as we don't have beat deafness. We love the feeling of social belonging. And when there's music on the dance floor and people are moving their bodies in sync, we feel like we belong to a tribe. Even watching people move their bodies in sync gives us a feeling of community and of belonging, which is why boy bands will never die. <laughs> there will always be boy bands because they get on stage and five boys, however many there are, they all move in unison and we feel like, yes, that's a thing, and I want to be part of that thing. Uh, watching people move in unison or participating ourselves allows us to participate participate without any special training. It allows, allows us to join in. Same thing with singing in a choir. releases a lot of uh, feel-good neurotransmitters as well as some chemicals that are good for our immune system. Cool. Uh, people have actually been protected from disease in their elder years by joining choirs and singing. DHEA is, is the compound that uh, we are protected by with, with, with uh, singing in a choir. It, it feels good. It's joining your voice to the voice of others, and that's a sense of belonging, which makes us feel safe and protected. So we all need to keep singing and we dancing. We need to keep singing and dancing. Yes, exactly we do. So our thanks to Susan Rogers, author of This Is What It Sounds Like, Thank joining you. us today. Thanks, John. We encourage we encourage everyone to pick up a copy of Susan's book here or at your local bookstore. And if you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash events. I'm John Boland. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, John. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.